0: Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. Hey everybody, welcome to Shouse in the House. I am coming to you with a new episode with Minnesota Congressman uh, Walter Hudson, and Walter, what district are you in?
1: I'm in District 30A, and yeah. uh, just to just for the sake of precision, um, I'm a state representative here in Minnesota. State
0: represent. I apologize. Yes. No problem. Um, and so I- I'll be honest with you. When people talk to me about you know Minnesota, Wisconsin, all of those types of states, I immediately just think all of you are red. Like I- I'm just like surely given where we live, it's the Midwest, this is a red state. Minnesota is the exception to that rule, like by and large, you guys are a blue state. And I I would have never expected that. But the legislation that you guys have passed, certainly in this last session, has blown my mind with regards to what, what is being pushed through. So first, Kind of talk to me about those demographics. I mean, obviously, anybody who thinks about Minnesota, they go back to the the Minneapolis riots. Like, that's like the very first thing that anybody associates with your state anymore, which is sad. But talk to me a little bit about the demographics. Is this just Minneapolis bleeding so much into everything else that it it overtakes it? Or is it really, truly a blue state and you guys are just pocketed with with? Red, I guess we'll call it.
1: No, what it is, is I I would say that uh, the let's put it this way. Let's let's look at it from an electoral perspective. The votes are there. This should be a red state. It can be a red state. And it's my belief that it will be a red state. Um, the reason why it's not has little to do with demographics and much more to do with the fact that we don't haven't had with apologies to all of my allies and the broader conservative coalition here in the state, we have not had a competent coalition, um, and that's not because we don't have competent actors or or competent candidates or competent caucuses or anything along those lines. It's because there there has to be an overall coordination of all of those different pieces. Um, focused on the tasks that are required to win elections in order to actually see those results. So for, for example, um, in 2022, we know that 20% of Republicans did not vote. Um, we know that there were tens of thousands, on the low end, there were tens of thousands of absentee ballots that were requested and then not turned in. I've heard anecdotes of people who were turned away from polling places um, because they had bad information. Uh, they had been encouraged not to vote by certain people um, and, and to wait until the last minute. And then they showed up at the wrong place and didn't have enough time to drive to the correct place outstate. Right. Wow. These are the reasons why uh, Minnesota is blue? It's because we have not gotten our act together on an operational electoral basis. In terms of the actual politics of the state, there, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Rochester, Duluth, notwithstanding, like our big urban areas, notwithstanding, you talk to the average Minnesotan, and you don't have to get that far outside of Minneapolis to find this. You talk right. to the average Minnesotan about their values, their beliefs, the things that they hold dear, the things that they believe, they're with us. Even if if they're not currently voting our way, they believe the things that we believe and they care about the things that we care about. And we just need to find ways to connect the values that they already have uh, to the electoral product that we have on offer.
0: So if that is one of the challenges that you guys have in the state, obviously this was a challenge in 2022, have, have you guys kind of coalesced and, and started making waves in the direction of fixing that problem? Or is this something we're going to continue to see in 2024?
1: I'm deeply encouraged by the fact that every conversation that I've had, so taking you back to election night, 2022. I got elected. Right. Like I was running for state representative for the first time, my first uh, state office election, and I won. You'd think I'd be ecstatic. I'd be thrilled. I'd be happy. I'd be celebrating. It was a miserable night. Because ah. I was look, I was looking at the broader context. Right, we had lost everything in this state. We had a Democrat trifecta that was going to be on the rise, and indeed, the results that we'll get into later of that trifecta have been horrific for the state, and are going to cause. They're going to. It's going to cause a lot of damage um, right. for a for a good long time. I mean, it's going to take a long time to be able to unwind the damage that the Democrats are doing to this state. Um, and so, looking at that. It is a come-to-Jesus moment, perhaps literally, right? It's It's a moment that gets you to question, you know, how did this happen? Because it certainly wasn't the expectation that we were going right. to lose to the extent that we did. The expectation was quite the opposite. I mean, we were all but measuring the drapes for the House yeah. majority here in the state of Minnesota. And by the way, the Democrats were expected to get their butts kicked because they should have, by every sure. historical metric, by every trend- that we know of conventionally in terms of politics, the, the, the uh, circ- situation with the economy, both in the state and nationally, um, right. and then, of course, the public safety issues, Minneapolis burning down, which you referenced, all of these things suggest that Republicans should have done amazingly well in 2022. Right. The reason why we didn't, and so in in that moment, I had to ask myself, and we all had to ask ourselves, how did this happen? And there are kind of guttural, uh, emotional answers to that question of, well, they cheat. um, It was stolen, you know, that whole narrative. Uh, But if you're willing to be honest in your self analysis and realize, gee, you know, if there were tens of thousands of ballots that we should have had um, that would have made the difference between having Keith Ellison as our attorney general or not, and and we just, they were out there and we just didn't get them. If 20% of Republicans just didn't vote, then I, I'm not sure I want to hear about voter fraud. Not that that's not a problem. Not that we shouldn't be concerned about election integrity. No, sure. Of course we should. But th- you can't do anything about that problem if you don't win. Yeah. And if you've got more than enough ballots out there uh, that you can collect and uh, turn in so that the their capacity to engage in fraud... Is overwhelmed. Well, then why wouldn't you do that? And you know how I right. know that's the situation. I've got a a colleague um, in the House, a Republican who was elected up from up north in the Iron Range. He won in a recount by fifteen votes. Fifteen. Okay. So so all those times me, that people
0: say my vote doesn't count, like that's yes. that's not true. <laughs> well,
1: and what it also indicates very strongly, I would argue is that whatever capacity the Democrats have to cheat is limited. There there is a point past which they can't do it anymore, right? Um, And so if if we go out and we get those ballots that we know are out there, we'll beat them in spite of what they're doing. And uh, as soon as I realized all of that, which was very quickly after election night in 2022 – my next thought was people are going to kill me when I say this publicly. Like if I go, I go to my BPOU, which is what we call our local Republican operation organization here in Minnesota, um, I go to the, my local folks, my my local Republicans, and I tell them, hey, guys, we were wrong about elections. Uh, we need to start doing things the way the Democrats are doing them and go out there and get these ballots and get them banked early and engage in the early right. voting and the absentee voting. If I tell them that, they're going to throw a bunch of tomatoes at me. They're going to be like, "You're a rhino. We need to get you out of there. You suck now." Um, but I was willing to stay <laughs> it anyway because right. it's true. And to me, what's true and what's correct and right trumps political concern, or at least it should
0: every time. And yeah,
1: I'll I'll, I'll be damned if people didn't just start nodding along and saying, "Yep, you're right. That's exactly yeah. what we need to do." And that and that has been the reaction. By virtually everyone, every audience, every group, every individual that I've talked to, with a couple of exceptions. And the the issue that I have with the with the exceptions is that the folks who criticize this, the folks who say, well, we can't do that because of X, Y, and Z voting machines, and uh, you know, the tipping our hand in terms of how many ballots the Democrats need to come up with in order to win and what have you, they they make their case as to why it's not going to work. But what they don't do is make a case as to what will work. Like, tell me what's going to work because, and and they don't have an answer to that question.
0: Well, and it's kind of like, you know, we, we sit and we talk about like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Like you're not getting people off the couch, certainly not in, you know, what I would consider like off presidential elections. So those midterm elections especially at a state level. So federally, you can still usually get some involvement or some interest, but at a state level, most people are not engaged enough in those midterm elections to really pay attention to who's running, and it's it's very unfortunate. It's like people are like, oh, well, there's no presidential election, so no big deal. Yeah, It's, like, it's a huge deal.
1: I, I mean, I, another statistic that really... I think sells this whole concept of we need to get on board with the new program is on election day before the first live ballot was cast on election day, fifty percent of the ballots had already been turned in via early voting wow. and absentee ballots and what have you. So you're telling me that your elect your campaign operation is going to depend upon being able to to prevail without taking advantage of, you're going to just write off 50% of the people who are voting. It's right. no wonder we lose, right? Like you yeah. You, and this whole, this whole deal with, you know, I don't trust it. Look, I don't trust it. Right. I don't, right. but it is what it is. This is the way it works. Um, and I, here's how I know it's working. I know it's working because there is a complete disconnect. Between what people want and what they are getting, you know, going back to those expectations that we were going to take the majority and that Republicans, there was going to be a red wave. I mean, they were saying that nationally, right? Right. The reason we we, we weren't stupid, like that wasn't a dumb idea. People weren't off the reservation when they were thinking and talking that way. They expected that because the historical trends indicated that that is what should happen. And it is what should happen. Because the sentiment that goes along with the outcomes that we're seeing in public policy should translate to a change in political leadership. The reason why it doesn't and the reason why it hasn't is because there have been changes both to election administration with all this early voting stuff and also legislative procedure in terms of how they go about the process of passing bills that has centralized the control. It's it's made its where Elections are no longer about votes. They're about ballots, right? They're no longer right. it's no longer about persuasion. It's no longer about issues. It's about turnout. It's about getting your people to show up, to, right. to turn in their ballot. Um and what that what that means is is it's no longer a contest of ideas. Ideas no longer matter. Sentiment no longer matters. The only thing that matters is the brute force of how many people you can get to sign a, b- a ballot and put it in a box somewhere. Right. Um, and so, you know, the, it's, it's a kind of a chicken and the egg problem, right? Where we, we look at that and we say, well, that's terrible. We need to change elections and we need to change the legislative process. Yes, of course we do. You know how we need to do that. The first thing we need to do is we need to win with the right. rules as they are. And then we can change the way the process works to make it more responsive to the people.
0: Sure. So let's go back to this, uh, and I wasn't going in this direction, but I kind of want to now that you've you've mentioned it. Apathy. And I, I had a conversation with someone today and it's like people really enjoy the ability to sit and complain, but they really don't want to take the action to change what their life looks like. And I'm talking across the board. This isn't just with voting. Apathy has set in societally for everything. No one takes responsibility for their own actions anymore. No one has any sort of culpability in anything in their life. Well, this is happening because this person did this or that situation occurred. It's never the person who's sitting there, right? And I'm wondering how you combat that, especially, you know, you're a legislator. How do you get people? And it's, I would say, below the age of 40 at this point. There is such a high level of apathy and lack of knowledge about how the process works, right? Like if, if I pulled a 35-year-old off the street, 25-year-old, we'll say a 25-year-old off the street and said, who are your three councilmen? Yeah. They would just look at me like I'm the dumbest person on the planet. They would have no clue what the answer to that question is. So how do you create the desire to be involved, to be interested, to be engaged when they feel like it doesn't matter?
1: Well, listen, uh, this is a variation of a type of question that I hear all the time, um, not just directed to me, but in, when I'm listening to other people's conversations. And basically, at, at root, what you're asking is, how do we educate people? How do we motivate people? How do we get people into a place where they're willing to do what needs to be done? And I used to struggle and handering over uh, that question of, you know, how, how do we come up with a secret sauce uh, or a clever limerick messaging, right, that is going to motivate people to do what uh, we need them to do in order to make the world a better place. And the, what I've come to realize, especially in the context, the electoral context and the legislative context that I just described, is that that is the wrong question to ask. The question is not how do we get people who don't care to care. The question is how do we support people who do care and provide them with an opportunity to do something productive that is going to make a difference. That's where it's at. Sure. You don't need to you, you don't need to convince the world that you're right and they're wrong or that they should care when they don't. Um, you need to pass those people by. Like those those people have made the decision that they don't matter. Okay, you get to decide that. You know, you get to decide that you don't matter. That your opinion isn't worth considering by not engaging, by not participating. Um, It's the people who do care, but they just don't know what to do, or um, they they don't have the confidence that it's going to make a difference. We, I mean, we talked about the margins, right? Like we came within half a percent. Of being able to defeat Keith Ellison this last year. That's right. not a lot of people who we need to get up off the couch, right? I mean, you you just need to reach the people who are already converted and then activate them. Now that's one part of the answer, right? The other part that I'll share is there's actually a lot of hope in this space. I mean, you you pick on on young people um, in particular. And I think that is listen, a
0: I wasn't picking on them. I was just <laughs> saying. Now the hairy citizens of the world that are getting paid to to care, those people care. Like they they're probably a little more knowledgeable. I'm sorry, I'm just kidding. But keep going.
1: No, I just it. People always talk about the youth and getting the the youth engaged and talking to young people and, and Gen Z, millennials, and all this stuff. And the fact of the matter is, if you travel in these new media spe- spaces, these alternative media spaces, such as yourself, right. Um, You're going to find a hell of a lot of young people, people in their 20s and their 30s, who are laughing at all this woke garbage and openly mocking it and are completely done with it. And it's not just because the rhetoric is silly and ridiculous and worthy of mockery on its face, though it is. It's also because they're looking around at their lives and the lives of the people around them who they care about and who they've grown up alongside, and they're seeing the results of the application of all of these ideas. Young right. people are looking at each other, and they're looking at themselves, and they're wondering, why aren't I happy? Yeah. Why Why don't I feel hope? Why aren't I excited about what, what's going to come tomorrow, next week, next year? Uh why why do i have all this debt? What why did the people who i trust the adults in my life um tell me to go rack up tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt so that i could get out of school and then go work at a coffee shop? Right. Um why, why did my counselors uh my admissions counselors suggest that i get this Uh, major in gender studies, right. Or, or queer management or DSI or whatever. And now there's nobody other than a a few, a handful of nonprofits that are willing to hire me for anything.
0: Um,
1: and, and, and then even more elementally than that, um, people are looking at, people are discovering the emotional and spiritual black hole that is the hookup culture. And, um, putting off family and marriage and not building an an actual legacy for your life, not through being some, you know, girl boss or CEO, um, stud, but by having kids who love you, right. Um, by, by having a family that is going to give a damn when you die, like your boss isn't going to care, right? Like you're, you're the company you, you put in, four decades with before you retired, um, is not going to show up in mass and tearfully mourn, um, at your funeral. They're just not going to do it because it, you were nothing to them. You were yeah. nothing to them. Um, and people are starting to realize these things and they're, they're coming around and, and starting to ask the, the essential existential questions that when seriously considered lead one to a conservative worldview.
0: Sure you bring up an, another really good point again not that was on the the path of discussion but somewhat i i, I did want to talk about so i i had put in there like the the moral societal decline like you're seeing uh man it it's funny i i and i put this on my timeline but it popped up somebody liked it from along uh, a couple months ago but my daughter is 11 years old and you know she's very obviously because of what I do with my podcast and stuff like that, she's very in tune with the world because I'm constantly talking about it and engaging with it. And, um, she wanted one of her little girlfriends invited her to see the Barbie movie. And I had already expressed how much I was not a fan of the Barbie movie, you know, and, and her seeing it and things like that. And she goes, she was standing at the refrigerator and she already knew like before she asked me, what my reaction was going to be. And she looked at me, she goes, don't worry, mom, I still want to get married and have kids. I'm not going to turn into a feminist. I'll just laugh at the good parts, you know? And it was like, she, she recognizes that she's having imagery and ideas pressed upon her that are not healthy for her, you know, as she gets older. And, and I talk about this, but I wonder, you know, like you and I having this conversation, we see eye to eye on this subject. And, you know, many of the people that I surround myself, obviously, we have the same kind of idea the the nuclear family is the most important thing to the survival of this country. It is the it is the 100 percent the world, in fact. And at every single turn, it is being torn apart, whether it's the trans movement I I have gay friends. I'm not being disrespectful, but that that whole LGBT world is an affront to the idea of a nuclear family. Um, you have pure de- degeneracy, uh, porn, and OnlyFans, and I mean that's where you're telling your daughters that that's where you can go make your boss babe money. Go take your clothes off on the internet for a dollar a pop. You know, it's just like can we come back from that and so i know that you are a religious man i've listened to a lot of your speeches in researching you um I, I i talk a lot about faith i don't have it i would love to i want faith i want to be that person i'm not quite there yet but like i understand it and i wonder societally are we capable of coming back rome is falling can we rebuild it? And I don't know that we can at this point. So Walter, tell me, do you think we've reached um, a breaking point where it's not salvageable and we should just start from scratch, let it collapse and start over? Or where do you think we're at societally with that?
1: So, I mean, you bring up faith, both in reference to, to my own and um, your search uh, for faith but i don't think one needs to have it certainly helps it helps a lot to have a faith
0: sure.
1: um and i would argue specifically a christian perspective um but all you have to do is look at history like look, look at the patterns look at the trends we've been through something called the dark ages right like rome fall uh the barbarians were at the gates this this has all happened before right um the the american revolution
0: Revol- yeah Yeah.
1: Yeah. Way more than once. Um, The American Revolution was a a pinpoint of light in a a time of darkness. Yeah. Yeah. We can definitely come back. The question is, how dark is it going to get before it does? And what's unique about our current situation um, as a species is our technology level, right? So we don't live in the same world that spawned the American Revolution. We don't live in the same world um, that gave us World War II. Like there, the structurally our institutions are different, but also technologically, we are all all eyes are open to everything all the time. Right, twenty four seven news cycle. We have access to more information than we have ever had at any point in the history of mankind, and it's not even close. Right. Even within the course of our own lifetimes, our access to information has gone off the charts. And it was just last year we got Chat ChatGPT, uh, which can <laughs> – with, with that one tool alone, um, you can walk through and become an expert on virtually any topic in a fraction of the amount of time that it would have taken you even five years ago, right? Sure. Um, and so the reason why I bring up all that context is that it suggests the possibility – that this, the, the speed at which the processes that lead to a liberty revolution um, historically, that those processes could potentially be sped up just by virtue of the fact that people have access to so much more input and feedback and information than they have ever had before. It's not going to take as long to get people to process and realize and react to events that are happening in the world and the consequences of decisions that are being made in the world. You know what I heard? This whole Speaker of the House situation. Um, at one point, my own congressman, Tom Emmer, was nominated. He was lined up. Kudos was-
0: to him, though, for, for his vote for... I, I I was really impressed with how he handled himself. I apologize. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but keep going.
1: As, as was I, um, he was really close, and I forget who it was that I was talking to uh, about him. And I know him, by the way. Not like we're not drinking buddies or anything, but we've known each other over the years. Um, and he made a comment, or there was a comment that was attributed to him that I found deeply interesting. He said something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing, that it used to be what everybody thinks. It used to be that there was a good old boys club and that they would come and threaten you with you know, taking away your fundraising and taking away sure. your committee assignments and all this stuff. That used to be the way things were. It's not that way anymore and it can't be. You know why? Because all any given congressperson has to do is run to the nearest camera run to the nearest microphone. And by the way, the nearest camera and the nearest microphone is in their pocket. Right. right? Um, And they've got an audience of tens of thousands ready and willing to share and transmit whatever it is that they have to say. And the more provocative, the better. So in that environment, if you go up to uh, a congressman and you say, you better vote the way we say, or we're going to X, Y, or Z, we're going to primary you, we're going to take away your committee assignment. Five minutes later, that is going to be live streamed all across yep. the internet and uh, you're going to reap the political consequences of doing so. And so that is an example of how technology and connectivity, and it's very popular and a lot of people, including myself, talk negatively about the advances of technology and what it portends for the future and all this is terrible and we're, we, ha- we spend too much time on our screens and all this. And there, and all of that is true. <laughs> um, right. but but there is an upside, right? And I think this is one of the upsides is that we are, when you're, when you're confronted with knowledge, when you see things with your own eyes, when you hear them with your own ears, you, whether or not you accept what you see in here, you are being presented with the truth and you're being presented with it in raw form. And that provides you with the opportunity to discern with more precision than our parents were able to, or our grandparents or our great grandparents. And so it's, it, it, that provides me with a high degree of hope that what we see happening with young kids that like I just described, I call them kids, twenties, thirties, um, young people who are being inundated with all of this propaganda. right? Right. And yet somehow they're seeing the light somehow you still have charlie kirk somehow okay. you still have turning point usa somehow you still have you know the kids who go to my church right um and and people who i run into all the time young people who who get it who understand and the reason why is because a lie no matter how you know, there, there's that old saying of you repeat a lie long enough and it becomes the truth that may be true but past a certain point it, the the uh, boy who cried wolf principle starts to kick in. If sure. you're lying all the time, then sooner or later people start to realize that you're a liar and they don't right. believe you anymore. And they look for the truth through other processes and other channels. And so I feel as though um, the the what's going to save us, if anything um, secular is going to save us, is rational self-interest. It's going to be right. people looking at looking at their own life and the lives of those of people who they care about and asking the question, how do we make this better? Right. Um, and the, the answer is not cutting pieces of our body off and changing our name. Okay. Uh, the answer is having children um, building relationships, being of service. You talked earlier and I know I'm rambling. You can cut me off anytime you want.
0: No, Um, I actually, I really appreciate that. I'm going to give you some pushback, but keep going and then I'll, I'll give you my pushback.
1: The, The last thing I'll say, and I'll let you push back is, um, you, you brought the nuclear family and the critical role that it plays in the current moment and how it's constantly under attack. The reason why the nuclear family is under attack is not just because it is this pivotal pillar of our society, the basic building block of our body politic. It is that. But it's also because the nuclear family is, and its health and well-being is a windsock. It is an indicator of how free we are as a culture. A free and prosperous nation is going to have big and vibrant families because they're going to be able to afford it, and they're going to be able to support each other there's go- there's going to be less there's going to be less crime because there's more positive relationships right like a a big vibrant family and big vibrant communities of people who are living free and living prosperously are not going to need mother government to come and save right. them and father state to come and save them and so the the left recognizes that uh if not intellectually for some of them, certainly intuitively, that the family cannot be allowed to stand because the, as as the family persists and thrives, the state diminishes and they Correct. can't have
0: that. Yeah, of course not. Can't shrink it down. Um, your faith in uh, technology and access to information. Uh, the only pushback that I'll provide, and, and this is where I'm going to give credit to our younger generation right they are able their level of discernment is much stronger. They are much more uh, critical and skeptical of what they see online because they have seen the the boy who cried wolf, the media and things like that right. But if we go over that 45 year old threshold into the older generations, Walter, there are people who still believe that Donald Trump is president and that he's running the government with the military. There are people who still believe that he worked with Russia to affect the 2016 election. There are still people in this very moment in time that think that that Hillary Clinton won the 2016 election fair and square. That you know, and 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 so I just it makes me and it's on both sides, right? They're they're fucking crazy. They see some I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say a bad word, but they they see some some crazy story on the internet. These are the same people who in the the coming of age of email that got their email that said, if you send this to 10 people in the next hour, you will have good luck and the Saudi prince will send you 50 million dollars. And they believed it. They they still believe it they will still send the email if you send it to them right now. And so I, I, while I do have hope in our younger generation for that level of discernment, it is lost upon the 45 to 80 year olds. My, my, uh, oh gosh, man they should not have access to the internet. Like I'm starting to like, when they get on Facebook and they see the next conspiracy theory that they believe, it just makes me nervous when I have a conversation with my mother who is 60 years old and she's like, did you know? And I'm like, no, mom, that's not real. That's fake. No, don't go on wish.com. Don't buy that. It's not real. It's not the same thing. So that's my only pushback is my faith is there for the younger generation. I don't know that it's there for the older one.
1: Well, look, I mean, there's there have always been and always will be people who believe wildly incorrect things. I think what the Internet has done, you know, I I think a lot of our perception of how much worse the world has got as a result of technology, um, a lot of that perception is is the same Type of perception that you would gain from turning up the dimmer on your kitchen light, right? Like, right? It was it it the dirt was already there, <laughs> like right? Yeah. Like every, everything was already messy. You just didn't see it before. Yeah. That, what the what the technology has done is it's enabled us to have more exposure to the wackiest ideas that are sure. floating around out there. And by the way, I I think that those that the wacky ideas. They serve an essential, discerning purpose, right? Like you, you I don't have disagree to have, with that.
0: You're right on that. Yeah,
1: I mean, you, you've you if if you don't like people are that's goes to this whole censorship thing, which we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. But um, the the whole idea that oh, we need to go out there and we need to stop disinformation and misinformation. No, no you don't. No, I don't think so. You you if you need as much misinformation, quote unquote as you could possibly get your hands on, because that is how you, by comparing and contrasting
0: right, that's and discerning how you and truth. examining,
1: that's how you get to the truth. If all you're right. hearing is one official narrative, then you're not going to be able to tell whether it's true or false. And that, by the way, is the real reason why they want to get rid of quote unquote misinformation.
0: Sure. Of course. Yeah. It, and it's funny, you know, we crack jokes as Americans on countries like China and North Korea and and their state medias. And it's like, oh, wait, we have that here too. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm gonna go. I know I've only got you for about 20 more minutes. So I wanna talk about some of the legislation that has been passed in your state over the course of the last um session. So earlier this year, and I'm just gonna touch on this, I know this was kind of the last one, but I, I still wanna talk about it. You guys passed a pretty uh I say you guys, the state of Minnesota passed a pretty heavy gun legislature in April um, or May. May, I guess, is when it was signed by the governor. But um, it, it's officially like you're all's red flag laws and universal background checks. So uh, you're starting to see this. um it's like you're you're seeing two different worlds. You're seeing states like Minnesota and New York, California, you're starting to see this like grab. Illinois is probably the worst right now. It's crazy like we always hear about New York and, and but Illinois is really really bad right now with what they're doing. Um and I just kind of want to hear your position in light of right now there's a mass shooter uh, on a military base, I think before we got on here, they had just locked it down. So I, I, there are organizations, and Ilhan Omar is a big one, you know, and she's a mouthpiece out of the state of Minnesota. And you you hear this gun grabbing type narrative. You should never have these weapons. You should never have these weapons. And it's like, what, what are you going to have left? Like if you're if you're taking it away from all of the people. To protect themselves, then the only people who have guns are the government and criminals. And sometimes I would equate those to the same thing, but you know, not, you're part of the government, so I want to be nice to you. No. <laughs> um
1: <laughs> I don't I don't think of myself that way, but I suppose it no, is. No, sure. True, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, but talk to me a little bit about how that feels. Like you get into office, like you said, it was kind of disappointing the day that you got elected, and you're watching legislation like this get passed. So that's the first piece. Um, talk to me about how do you dial that back? Because that's going to have to be, I mean, red flag laws, I think are the most unconstitutional thing that exists where someone else prior to you even committing a crime, someone else gets to dictate that you lose your right to your firearms. Like that to me is egregious.
1: Yeah. So, there's a little bit to unpack there, right? So it's it's not as though there aren't circumstances where somebody can and properly should lose their right to possess a firearm. Um, but the the processes that one, the types of processes that one should have to go through in order for that to happen should look like a criminal conviction Damn. or... Like, like a civil commitment. like That's the type, the level of uh, due process that ought to be in place uh, in order to encroach upon somebody's rights like that because they are your right. You do have a right to defend yourself and you have a right to defend yourself in, in the manner that you choose. Now, the right. circumstances have to be reasonable, right? Like the circumstances have to call for um, self-defense and the deployment of lethal force. But what that lethal force looks like and w- what type of... Um, firearm you utilize to defend yourself. And in a given circumstance, uh, th- there really shouldn't be, um, some arbitrary upward limit as to how far you can go in order to be able to defend yourself. And I think the proof of that, that we all just witnessed on October 7th is the Hamas invasion of Israel. Right. Ha- the, what Hamas did in Israel is unfathomable. I mean, imagine being in your house and all of a sudden down the street going door to door, like some sort of perverse demonic salesman. You have these roaming gangs of terrorists invading home after home, door to door, pulling families out of their homes, burning their homes, shooting them dead in the street, tying up kids, shooting them in the head. Um, if that's not your proof that you need to have the ability to defend yourself with lethal force. And by the way, if you're if if dad's away at work and you're a mother who's at home with uh three kids and you've got four prowling terrorists knocking down your door, seeking to to kill you and potentially worse, right? right. Um you probably need a fully automatic weapon, right? Like you probably need something that you you need a higher level of force than that, which is being brought to bear against you. What you don't want is something proportional, right? Like you don't want to have a fair fight when you're fighting people who are trying to kill you. You want to be able to end the conflict decisively and uh, finally, right? Right. Um, And so When you look at something like the red flag laws, and in particular, the red flag law that they passed here in the state of Minnesota, it doesn't make any sense, even on its own premises. So they would say things like, well, we need this in order to get guns out of the hands of somebody who is presenting an imminent threat of danger to themselves or others based upon the testimony of such and such and so and so. um, And a judge agrees. And so we're just going to come and take their guns. Right. Hold on. Wait wait a minute. Walk me through this again. You're saying that the circumstances, hypothetically, are so emergent, so urgent, present such an emergency uh, due to apparent, clear and present, imminent harm of danger to human beings, themselves or others, that that's the circumstances? And the only thing we're going to do about it is come Let's and take, take their guns. guns. Right. That's it. Yeah. That's all we're doing. Then we're going to leave, and we're going to leave them there with their kitchen knives and, and their, their, their rope in the garage, and their yeah. cars, and their, and-, and their car in the driveway. Yeah, um, that's insane. That's yeah. insane. This is an insane policy. Yes. It, it is not what this policy does. Is it? shifts the focus from where it should be, which is the person, Right, the person. It doesn't take care of the person. And by extension, it doesn't take care of the public. It doesn't care of, take care of people. Right, And it puts all of the focus on the object, on the weapon, sure. on the gun. The gun is the problem, right? Uh, and ignores the people. This situation in Maine uh, that you talked about, and the, the details are still coming out and it's still fuzzy sure, and we don't know for right. sure all what happened at this point. Um, but there are reports that this guy th- th- he legally should not have been in possession of weapons. Um, he, he had contact with uh, medical health services and uh, law enforcement previously. He was on the radar. So under the law, as it currently exists, he shouldn't have had guns and yet he did. Hmm. Well, right. I, I guess we need more laws then to make it oh, even good. more illegal for him <laughs> to not have weapons. Say it
0: from your lips to every town USA's pens as they write their checks to the legislators.
1: And then on top of that, um the what we really have here is both the perpetrator and everyone who he assaulted. Right. Is a victim of the state's negligence to take mental health seriously. Right. My my mom has has issues. Uh, she was on disability my entire life. I had, she never worked a day in my life, um, because she's bipolar. She's got mad depression, and I I can attest to the fact that she would not be able to operate in any given workplace. She just does not have the ability. Um, when I was younger she would she would spend time she would have what they called nervous breakdowns right um uh, when right. before before they were able to better manage uh, her situation with medication as they are today and she would have to go in the hospital and she would have to spend some time there and she would have to get some care and and they would have to make sure that before they released her that she was ready to be released that she could Joy. function in her home and that she wasn't presenting a danger to herself or others. That's the way we used to treat mental health issues. Now we call it homelessness, right? Right. We, we pretend that we have this big homelessness problem. We don't have a homelessness problem with a mental health and, and physical health drug addiction problem. That's what we have and a criminal justice problem. If we did those three things, if we took criminal justice seriously, if we took yep. mental health seriously, and um if we provided for people, I forget what the third thing is. I hate when you do that. Oh, three things, and I can only think of two. But if we if we if we took the essential aspects of what government is supposed to do seriously, then you wouldn't have a homelessness problem. Because why is somebody homeless? Have you ever met somebody who was homeless because they wanted to be?
0: Sure. Right? Well, like ah, like, oh, this is just a anymore, lifestyle. Yeah, know. like they're <laughs> Yeah, today I w- could go out on the street they make more money on the side of the street sure. than they would working in a job. So that's a bad question, but I do understand the point that you're making.
1: Yeah, I mean I- excluding the hucksters and you know the con artists sure, and what stuff. Sure. Um most of the time the reason why somebody's on the street is because they have a drug problem um or because they have a mental health issue. That's it. Right. It, it it's they don't have the executive function. They don't have the capacity to do what it takes in order to live their lives productively and safely and we used to have places for those people to go to receive right. the care they needed and it was it it accomplishes two things it gives them the care that they need and just as importantly it segregates them from orderly society so that the rest of us can live our lives in peace sure I'd, I do not deserve, and you do not deserve, and my neighbors do not deserve to have to endure and put up with the consequences of a crazy person roaming the street, setting up camp next to my kid's swing set, right? Like, sure. that, is, that is not something that human beings should have to endure. It's not right. good for us. It's not good for them. So this is a pretty pretty easy problem to solve. But instead, they want to talk about homelessness and guns.
0: Right. Um. That that also goes back to I mean what I was saying earlier about personal responsibility. Like it's also a a situation where these are individuals that, and I don't want to use like tie me up, tie them up by the bootstraps or whatever, but like like actually taking an act. The reason I say this, my daughter and I uh, were accosted by a man who exposed himself to her. I work in downtown Louisville, and. It turns out this man is a convicted pedophile that raped a one and a two year old and he's schizophrenic, so they can't keep him in jail because he's not mentally fit to stand trial. And then there's nowhere to to permanently send him. There's no uh, mental institutions anymore that that have long term housing. And so when he exposed himself to my daughter, I turned her really quickly and made sure that she didn't see what he was doing. And when the uh, when the prosecuting t- prosecutor asked me, you, you know, they're doing the deposition with Ainsley. They're asking all these questions, and they're like, "Did she see him gesture towards her?" And I was like, "No, I turned her around." And and Ainsley, I'm not going to tell my daughter to lie. You know, that's what am I teaching then at that point, right? But mm-hmm. because of that, he was out in less than five months. Like, I got a little alert on my phone. He has a restraining order and walks by my office every day and digs through the trash. Like, it's, you can't do anything about it. You're supposed to just kind of sit and, yeah. and smile, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that is a very obvious um, and, I think, instructive indication of a broken System in a broken society, yeah. like the laws, the law is broken and it's failing. I'm I'm not terribly concerned about that guy and his well being, um, but it's failing him, sure. And it's certainly failing you and your daughter and I, everybody, literally everybody else, right? Yeah, because I mean, guy, look, that happened
0: to us, it can absolutely happen to someone else, like he's out on the street to do whatever,
1: yes. Um, and there's a time and we don't have to go back all that far in our own history there's a time where that sort of uh, behavior especially especially what he did to that one and two year old um you wouldn't have had the opportunity to do anything else again right yeah, uh, yeah. and I, and i think i i think th- there is something that's going on whether it's looking you're looking at israel and what's going on with the dynamic there where they're being told that they need to show restraint and be proportion everything or you're looking at a situation like you describe um and that you experience with your daughter uh, or you, or you look at you know a lot of the things we did with public safety here this past session in Minnesota what you see is evil taking full advantage a- and and turning the good against itself so mm-hmm. the left is always appealing to our compassion and appealing to our mercy and appealing to our, our desire to for towards re- our hope and redemption, right? And it's sure. like it's like, a, it's like a corruption of our worldview. They take it and they turn it and they use it against us in order to enable and foster and the even bad. subsidize yeah. evil, yeah. Um, and, th- and that needs to change. Like, good people need to regain because we used to have this. Good people need to regain the discernment to realize when they are being taken advantage of and to, and to stop confusing mercy and redemption and second chances with licentiousness and permissiveness. Such a good,
0: such a good, such a good line. That's true. It's true.
1: It's true because mercy, you know, it's, it's funny. My, uh, my pastor, One of my pastors gave a sermon this past Sunday, and he talked about the mercy of God. And I I won't get deep into the theology, but it it was a fantastic message where the point that he was making is that God wanted to show his creation, his children, how merciful he is. And he never would have been able to do that but for the presence of sin. And his forgiveness of it through the sacrifice of his son, right? So the without the sin to be there to show us how bad we are, we would never have truly understood just how merciful he is for forgiving us in spite of how bad we are. And right. um, what the, the point that I took away from that, that I thought was a- applicable to our political situation and our cultural situation, is that... From a Christian perspective, mercy is not mutually exclusive from justice. Like the mercy that the Christian receives in the Christian worldview and forgiveness of sin is not a permissive, eh, it's fine, you did bad, it's okay, we'll let it go. That's not what right. it is. It's you did bad, and so now this guy, who happens to be the son of God, is going to suffer for it. He's going to sure. pay the price that you should have paid. And so justice is still served. What what the left has done and what the world has done is it has perverted, it has taken the Jesus part out of that equation and said, in order to be a good Christian or in order to be a good Westerner, in order to be a good American, you need to have mercy and forgiveness without justice. Like nobody should have to pay the price. For right. For that sin, for what was done wrong, and that is a perversion that is from the pit of hell that is not the way it is supposed to work,
0: right, so true, okay, next two three things that I want to try to cram in in the next six minutes. um you guys have passed and it's officially signed into law. Walt signed it into law. the trans refuge bill is how it was kind of coined um. And this is this kind of was like a a multitude of things. It was kind of like an omnibus bill where they crammed a bunch of stuff into this. Right. Okay, so. Is this as bad and and I don't know because I'm not in Minnesota, but is this as bad as the California legislation where it's kind of like it absolves. Or, or essentially cuts the f- the parent out of the equation and allows the child to seek treatment without parental permission.
1: Effectively. Yes. Um, it's now kind of what the, I got the,
0: the impression.
1: The California and Washington, or is it Oregon? There's a couple of crazy States out there that passed legislation similar to this. Uh, it might be worse in those other States, but only by a couple of degrees. Um. I've had it argued to me and credibly argued to me that this does in effect enable the state to take away custody from parents of children who are seeking quote unquote gender affirming care, which by the way, let's unpack that, right? Like I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of just copying and pasting the chosen language that the left likes to
0: use. Yeah, It's not gender affirming care. Like we don't affirm any other mental health disease. When I go in with anorexia, and i tell you that if i eat food i'll die you don't look at me and say oh okay heather don't eat food then just i think it would be i'm going to affirm your disease and tell you that you should should not eat food and this is the only thing that we treat different and i don't understand why
1: yeah what is entailed in quote unquote gender affirming care before let's before we even get to the surgery, the unnecessary surgery to mutilate children, um, and eliminate their biological function, their sexual function, their ability to have children, um, their, their ability to enjoy a a relationship with another person. Um, before we even get to that, and before we get to the poisoning, the hormones, we're going to stop biological processes. We're going to pause, quote unquote, puberty and all that before any of that the most elementary version of quote unquote gender affirming care is renouncing the identity that God gave your child. It is renouncing the name that you gave your child. Right. It is the the way they talk about it. They talk about quote unquote dead naming. Um, and they'll, they'll activists on the other side will tell the parents of say a quote unquote trans girl your, your son is dead. Your son, your son no longer exists. Um, gender affirming care is conceptually killing your child. That's what it is. Right. You, you kill them as a concept in your head and then you engage in all sorts of physical and mental abuse to, as you point out with your great analogy, which I've used as well. Um, to exacerbate and aggravate and make worse their disorder their mental disorder that is harming them that is causing that is preventing them from being able to peaceably enjoy their life as who they are right. and the, the most perverse part about it is that they they do it in the quote unquote name of letting people live be who they are and live as they are and what have you Live your truth Walter
0: live your truth
1: Yeah your truth is what you are that's right. your truth Um the the simplest definition I think of a mental disorder a mental illness is the the persistent inability to recognize and live according to what is true
0: right. Like
1: if you don't have if you don't have the ability to recognize what's true and to make healthy decisions in light of that truth, you have some kind of mental illness, like all the different various mental illnesses that we could describe are going to fit into that box of there's, there's something about your perception to either think or act, uh, that is misaligned with reality and is therefore unhealthy and causing you problems and keeping you from being able to function. And this certainly falls under that, uh, and it's, it, is, it is criminal. You know, They talk about the right and wrong side of history. We will look back on this and, and marvel in much the same way uh, that we do today looking back on chattel slavery and looking back on you know, all these horrors of the past where a society decided to, to kill itself, decided to engage in, in horrific crimes of abuse and violence against its own population. Um, this, this is a phenomenon. You know, you talked earlier about the nuclear family, the nuclear family is an expression, the most basic expression of life. It's the result of life, life, lived life, persisting life being productive results in family, right? right? What does this do? This, destroys sexual function this brings about death this deforms this cuts off entire uh, trees or limbs branches from family trees you take May. a branch from a family tree that could have grown who knows how big and how long and had in, in so many branches off of itself you take that and you cut it off you change its name you prevent its ability to ever grow again you uh, I mean, there are, there are aspects of this, and we've never done anything like this before as a society. Never. Never. Right. We have never done anything where we, we just decide that we're not going to have children, that we're going to kill a bunch of the ones that we do conceive, and that we're going to poison, mutilate, and abuse the ones that are born.
0: Right.
1: That is, that is civilizational suicide. And that is why we are on the right side of history and they are not. That is why we are going to prevail and they are not, because they are literally killing themselves.
0: That's the I, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like as a woman, my sole function in the world, like the only thing that I am biologically designed to do is to reproduce. Like that's it. That's if if you're looking at my core function in society, that's what I was born for. I was born to carry on the species. Like that's it. At at my core, I am a vessel to carry on life. And when you start manipulating that and you start changing that, you're you're literally ending your species. You're you're self-destructing. And I I want to be really clear to my audience, like I am I am understanding that that this is a decision that people can make when they're adults. If you would wish to live your life this way, I support your decision in doing so. That is that is what you are doing. However, if we're talking about you know a 10-year-old that has decided that they want to live their life as a boy, allow them the freedom and ability to change their mind. You're removing that from them by putting them on drugs, you're removing, by changing their mind, like six years down the road, wait a minute, I actually like boys and I'm pretty sure I'm actually a girl. Like give them the freedom to explore that and change their mind later. If you pop them full of these drugs when they're 10 years old, they don't get that chance later. They don't get to say, oops, just kidding. You've ruined that opportunity for them. And to your point, that for me is child abuse like you're abusing your child if you if you take that away from them so if you're a grown adult and you've weighed all of the consequences and that is the decision that you've made for yourself then I have no place in the world to tell you that you can't you know like you that's your individual liberty you take that and you do with it as you wish now I can morally have a problem with it I can disagree with it but I can't tell you what to do you're a grown adult. But I I do have a problem when we're doing this to children. So that's just like my clarification for my audience, because I don't want them to be like, Heather hates trans people like that's not where this is going. But okay, Um, you did bring something else up, though, about killing our children. And I do want to touch on this because Minnesota's your repeal of in your it was in your omnibus health bill, which makes it. Even more, the irony of the way that legislators word their legislation to be, in essence, the opposite of what it should actually do. Um, you guys repealed your legislation for now. You allow not only abortion up to birth, but it removes the ability to save the life of an infant that survives an abortion. You you have to go ahead and kill that baby too. So it's I, I. That's awful, and it's the worst in the country. Yeah.
1: So let, let me just clarify, just to make sure that we're precise, because I don't want people coming back at you. And, no,
0: and that's and, fair. And, and if lied. I misrepresented something, please let um, me know.
1: No, but what what I I think what needs to be specified is that what the law does. It's the repeal of the Infant Born Alive Protection Act, Correct. and what the Infant Born Alive Protection Act did when it was law is it required caregivers to provide life-saving care in the event that you had an infant that was born as part of a botched abortion so you had to actually provide the care that would rationally uh, preserve the life of that child what the infant uh, with the removal of that language um, they actually changed it they didn't just remove it they changed it what what they replaced it with was something like, comfort care. I forget exactly precisely what the language is. But in other words, there's no longer the duty to try to save the child's life. They've perverted it into, you know, give them a Tylenol, you know, right. metaphorically, right? Like me, me, try to try to keep the suffering down as as they expire from neglect and exposure on a medical table. Sure. Um that's the situation. And it's it is like the end result is completely the same as Actively killing them. You know, it is it is an action you are taking, knowing what the result is going to be, um, with I would say very depraved disregard for the value of that life. Um, but these are abortionists we're talking about, after all. So they probably didn't have a lot of concern for human life to begin with. Um, and yeah, it's it is the worst. Our abortion policy in the state of Minnesota currently is the worst abortion policy in the world not just yes. in the United States, not, certainly yes. not just regionally. Like we, we we are giving China and North Korea a run for their money right. in terms of what you can do to the, the most innocent among us. And by the way, to our future, like, again, going back to that concept of branches on a family tree stars in the night sky that we're just allowing to blink out. Right. Um, And it, it, it's, it's hard to talk about.
0: It's it hard is. to talk about.
1: It's hard to think about. And I think that's why a lot of people don't think about it or talk about it. Yeah. Um, because it's it is a it's a dirty, dirty reality that is a a huge stain on the soul of America generally and Minnesota in particular. And uh it's it's absolutely horrific. I I, I feel as though that too is going to be something that at a certain point in the future, future generations are gonna look back at and just shake their heads, same as we look at chattel slavery or Jim Crow, and go, how was a society ever willing to do that to its own
0: children? Right. Yeah. Okay, so two more questions, and then I promise I'll let you go. I'm seven minutes over now. Um. So I, I'm going to give just a couple quick stats for audience purposes, but you already know this information. So in the state of Minnesota, immigrants, including refugees, Comprise 9% of your workforce, 6% of your business owners, and 7.5% of your GDP. Um, They own 11% of the businesses in the Twin Cities metropolitan area. The national quota was cut in 2016 to 50,000. I'm sorry, from 110,016 to 50,017. 45,018. But you guys have a massive immigrant population per capita, the largest in the country. And so I'm just curious as right now you see the conflict with Israel and Hamas, and Minnesota seems really willing to let communists into the country. Ilhan Omar is probably the biggest example. And I had a conversation actually with one of your constituents today and I brought that up. I was like, well, her dad was, a, you know, a general in a communist regime that was overthrown by their own, like their own people. Like they, they got rid of them. And that's why she's a refugee because they had to flee or they were going to be murdered and because they were part of the problem. And then now she's a Congresswoman, you know, and and, he argued with, he's like, that can't be true. That's not real. And I'm like, look it up, bro. Like how do you live in this state and you don't know this? So anyway, I'm curious if you see how you see like our foreign policy as a country right now, uh, federally is the most trash in my lifetime. I've never seen the United States look so weak, so inept and so uncapable. Of handling not just ourselves, but like our relationships worldwide. And so you're starting to see with Russia, you're starting to see with uh, Israel and Hamas, and even, you know, your Hezbollah and, and, and all of that stuff. So are you guys seeing another influx coming in the state of Minnesota? And if so, I'm just curious how that has changed the culture in Minnesota. Like, has it changed For you guys, I mean, obviously, every state has its own kind of like nuance and culture, and then we as a nation do. So has that changed that for you guys with having such a huge immigrant population?
1: Yeah, I mean, you definitely are going to have an impact when you uh, import um, large segments of a foreign population that has a completely different culture. Um, into your community and into your state, you're, you're going to see impacts. Um, I think it's important to qualify any discussion on that subject with with what should go without saying, but very often does not. And that is that we're not talking about a monolithic group of people here, right Like there there are groups within groups, um, tr- tribes within tribes, families within tribes. like there are, there are fo- there's a diverse array of people. Um, who are part of these refugee groups and they don't all think the same. They don't all believe the same thing. Right. A lot of them are with us. A lot of yeah. them believe the things that we believe, especially when it comes to sure. these social issues. Uh, but what you do have in the mix surely is some bad actors. Um, and you're, you're going to have that in, in any given population group. But when you're talking about importing people who aren't from here, like when you're talking about making a decision that results in having a large group of people here, is why should we take on the risk right. of importing folks who would do us harm? Like, what do we get out of that? What, what is the moral case for why we must do that or should do that? Sure. And that's a question that doesn't get answered. Um, and in terms of like the impact, the cultural impact, yeah, it's definitely made a difference. I mean, I remember my dad, not long after we first moved here, I moved here in 1993 when I was 12 years old. My dad his first apartment that he had when he first started scoping out Minnesota to move here from Michigan. His apartment was within walking distance of the Mall of America that we have here, which at the time was the biggest mall
0: in sure. the country
1: if not I've the world. I've been
0: there. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. I remember walking there with my dad on the day that it opened and just being so amazed at That's the, cool. the grandeur and the size. I mean, and now you walk into it and you don't think twice it's no big deal. But t- going back to that moment of seeing it for the first time and I had never been in, well, it's the biggest mall in, in the world, right? In the, sure. the um I had never seen anything like it. It's like going to the Colosseum in Rome or something. <laughs> yeah. Um And that place for years and years and years was a mecca. It was a, a source of, tremendous, um, tourism and not just from outside the state, people coming through, but like locally people would go on purpose who live here to the mall of America to have fun, to enjoy the indoor amusement park, to eat, to see comedy shows and all of this stuff today. You are borderline nuts if you purposely intentionally go to the mall of America. Um, and the reason why is because of the level of crime um, the level of violence, the level of disorder that has developed there over the years, and who are most of the perpetrators of this, it's not people who were born here, right um, or or if they were, their parents weren't right sure um, and and even just walking around and you can go you can Google videos, YouTube videos of this of just like crowds at the Mall of America, what it looks like it looks like you're walking around Bangladesh right like it it doesn't yeah. look like you're in minnesota it doesn't look like you're in the united states of america um and there's something to be said about that right i mean it's like the the your, your country should feel like your country yeah like why is that a controversial thing to say like y- your your community should feel like your community and that doesn't mean that we're going to say you can't live here because of your religion or your national origin or the color of your skin or any of those things. It it doesn't mean that, but what it does mean, what it should mean is that when somebody decides that they're going to join our community, they're going to join our nation, they're going to become a resident, they're going to pursue citizenship, they should share our culture. They should want to become a part of what we have going on. They shouldn't just be looking for an alternative to where they're at. Right. They should be looking specifically for our for what we have to offer and to be a part of it. And the problem um, with a lot of the, the things that we've seen emerge out of this imported community. And again, there's a lot of good. I mean, a lot of the things you cited, percentage of GDP, percentage of businesses, it that's good. That's productivity. That's excellent. Um, but alongside it, you have unfortunately, very tangible evidence of a phenomenon that a lot of us don't have the moral capacity to understand. And I'll try to unpack it and explain it to you here. I think one of the biggest mistakes that Westerners make, and Americans in particular, is that we assume because of how we grew up and because of what we believe and because of all of the ideas that are part and parcel of our culture, our judeo-christian traditions and all of this, we assume that other people have our same values and look at the world the same way that we do and value things the same way that we do. It's right. not true. And so we'll we'll look at somebody like uh like an Elon Omar and we'll think, well, logically, she must care about the same things that I care about. And therefore, when you take her out of the cesspool that she came from and you place her here in the, the cornucopia of prosperity that is the United States of America, she's going to look at what we've got going on and she's going to be like, this is amazing. How did you guys do it and how can I get on board? Right? How can I be a part of this wonderful engine of prosperity that you guys have crafted over here. We assume that that's going to be the reaction because that's what our reaction would be. Like if we sure. were down and out, <laughs> if we were in a in a bad spot and somebody lifted us up and saved us and brought us to someplace where we were free and could be prosperous and pursue our dreams, we would be grateful. We would grateful. get on board. We, we sure. would become part of it. But that's not how some of these people feel. A lot of them look at it and they have the exact opposite reaction. They look at what okay. we have and they say, you, they, damn you for having that. Damn right. you for being what you are. Who? How dare you do what you're doing and have what you have? How dare you be America? And sure. thanks for thanks for opening the gate. Now we're here. We're going to start messing things around. We're going to start taking things. We're going to start burning things. We're going to start assaulting people. And that's what you see with the violence and the crime. And unfortunately, it may um, end up rising to, to the point where we see violence here uh, that's not dissimilar from the violence that Israel just saw with Hamas, and in fact, there's um, anecdotal—you uh, know—I won't—I won't go into details, but there are anecdotes out there um, that intelligence agencies that are friendly to us, and including our own, are looking at the very real possibility of of an unprecedented amount of urban violence um, that would look similar to what we saw in Israel. And I hope that that doesn't happen. But we certainly, if, if it does, we're going to know why.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, let's be honest, Walter, when your person who's approving your immigrant visas from that particular area is a member of the Palestinian liberation organization, and they're working in our department of Homeland security, that's a huge problem. That's not, you know, it's not necessarily tied to what you're saying, but it's certainly a contributing factor, I think. Um, I have taken up way more of your time than I anticipated, so I sincerely apologize, but it was such a great conversation and I wanted to make sure I got to everything. Thank you so much for joining me. I'd love to have you on again sometime. And certainly maybe on my live show uh, where you can have some more interaction with the public. So thank you so much for joining me. Um, thank you guys for tuning in. I love you guys as always. Um, make sure you go follow Walter. Uh, can you give your handle real fast? I don't have it. In front at, of me. at Walter Hudson on Twitter. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. You guys take care. Have a good night. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to be notified whenever we have another episode come up, please subscribe. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Please make it a great day in America. This is the country where few people leave, too many people want to enter, and dead people still vote. Take care. I know not what course others may take. But as for me,
1: give me liberty or give me death.